Good morning, good morning. Can we go outside and have church, please? I'm actually really impressed that half of you are here because, like, these are the mornings where people are like, we could go play or we could go worship Jesus, and so you are the spiritual ones. <laughs> hear me? I want you to hold it over everyone's head. Um, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. Most Sundays, um, I get to open up God's Word. If you would do me a favor, open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 14, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Um, you can open up on your phone or your iPad or the Bible in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, um, I want to invite you that Bible inf- invite you to take home the Bible in front of you. Keep it. If you don't like the way that looks, come talk to us and we'll find you one that you like the way it looks. So um, I want to introduce you to a very good friend of mine. His name is BHAG. How many of you know BHAG? Some of you. Put up the screen. Uh, this is BHAG. Uh, BHAG is a, we'll say, a fictional character developed by an author. His name is Jim Collins. And BHAG stands for Big, Hairy, Audacious Girls. I'm kidding. Big. <laughs> Sorry. That just came to me. That was so funny in my head. Should I say it or should I just keep going? I'm so sorry. <laughs> Give me a minute. Oh. <laughs> oh. All right, I'm good. What's the G? Someone? Goals. Big, hairy. I'm going to get control. You know when you're in the principal's office and you're like, you just can't not laugh and you're in trouble? Like, that's how I'm feeling right now. Big, hairy, audacious goals. Well, um, in, in the church world, um, a BHAG would be something that is something that is completely 100% impossible without God's intervention. For example, the 2016-17 Chicago Bears. <laughs> D. Rose staying uninjured next year. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Science discovering how to regrow hair naturally from a bald man's head. Like, that would be, I'm just, that's a big hair audacious goal without God's intervention. How many, can I get an amen from some of you who would love to see that? <laughs> you see that girl, and she is so out of your league. BHAG, Right? And, and guys, some of you are not, you're, you're not attractive, and yet you've married a very beautiful woman, okay? And so, like, all these single guys are like, I, I, can, I can date a girl like that. BHAG, that's what it is. It's an intervention of God on our behalf. Dudes, can I get an amen? Amen. You just admitted you're ugly. All right. Here's, here's the deal. We pray to God for BHAGs. We don't pray to God for things that are easy. Most of us do not get up in the morning and say, Oh, dear Jesus, will you give me the strength and power to put on my underwear? Oh, dear Jesus, will you please give me the strength and power to brush my teeth? For the majority of people, those are things that you don't stop and say, you know, I need to pray about this because you do them. But when God puts something in front of you that is insurmountable, that is too big for you, you step back and you say, God, this is too big for me. This is too grand. This is larger than me. This is outside of my jurisdiction. I need a divine intervention. And so I, I want to just tell you one thing and then share a couple of my BHAGs as a pastor. Um, God loves, 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 loves to put his kids in positions where they're out of their element, where it is too big for them to do on their own. Please somebody give me an amen. God, like you're sitting there and you're like, I don't know what to do. This is not easy. I am buckling under the pressure. I don't have the strength 
and you are exactly where God wants you to be because God loves entering into those circumstances and showing you he can, he is able. This is within his jurisdiction. He's powerful. God loves it. Now, my two genuinely most frustrating BHAGs that I experienced as, as a pastor, these are the two circumstances um, that when I am encountered with these, it feels impossible. Number one, broken marriages. When there is a broken marriage in front of me, and I mean, I, I mean not just like we're bickering, I mean a really genuine broken marriage where the D word is on the table, it is one of the most challenging things to resolve. Sometimes, right, the couple stays together and will say a cold war for the rest of their lives. That is not resolution, okay? Um, BHAG for me, big, hairy, audacious goal. Dear Jesus, would you please, would you please intervene in this marriage? Because unless you do this, this thing's toast. Number two, bitter church members. That might not sound like that big of a deal to you, but I just want to be real straight with you. When a bitter root takes a hold of a church member, it is, I want you to hear me, unfortunately, unusually rare that they overcome it quickly or at all. Uh, I, I never quite understood why Hebrews 12.15 was so poignant about this, but I'll just read it to you, and now I understand this in a new way. Uh, the author of Hebrews says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Bitterness is, is it's just this powerful thing. So when I see these two circumstances, I stop and I say, Jesus... This is way outside of my area of expertise. This is way outside of my power. If there's ever a time when we just got to get on our face and beg God to intervene, broken marriages and bitter people. Because broken marriages and bitter people are honestly two of the most difficult circumstances. And so we find these circumstances in church where there's conflict and it is gut-wrenching and it is hard. And we get to Ephesians chapter 3 and Paul is going to pray for something big. He is going to address what is the largest, most insurmountable problem in the church. And just to give you an illustration of this, we're going to go to the end of the prayer just to give you some of the context. Now, what you have been tempted to do, I'm sure, and I have also, is to take this prayer, pluck it out, and basically apply it anywhere we want and say, God, do more than what I'm asking or thinking. I want a bigger house. I want a better job. I want more of this. I want, and I want to bring you back to the original context of this so that when you do pray this prayer, you can know what it's actually talking about. And so here's what he says. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. I love the way the NIV says it. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us. And when God does this, whatever this thing is, to him be the glory in the church. He's going to get glory in the church. There's going, to be, there's going to be a circumstance that is so insurmountable, that is so big, that the only way that it is going to be fixed in the church is if God intervenes and God does it and God fixes it. And when God does this, when God resolves this issue in the church, uh, he's going to get glory in the church and in Christ Jesus because Jesus is going to be the one who brings about this kind of healing that we're going to talk about in a moment. And he's going to get glory throughout all generations forever and ever Amen. I mean, that's how this prayer ends. The prayer ends with God fix problem A, 
And then when you do, we're going to say you were able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or imagine. You are able to resolve the issues of the human heart that honestly no pastor or counselor or self-help guru is able to resolve. And so we get to the end of this, and I want to bring you to the end to kind of build your anticipation for the actual prayer, because whatever this issue is, is so big and so hard that unless God does it, it's unresolvable. Now, we'll go to um, verse 14, and in your notes, you'll see the first thing. Um, I want to give you three prayers to pray that if you are a Christian who is in conflict with another Christian, and I'm going to give you the answer, the seemingly most insurmountable problem facing Paul in the Ephesian church is, is conflict from Jewish Christian to Gentile Christian. That's it. That somehow conflict in the church, particularly conflict in the church where people are coming from different backgrounds and different ethnicities and different, um, we'll say, perspectives, is one of the hardest um, conflicts to bridge. And Paul basically says, unless God comes in and fixes your conflict, it's just going to become a cold war, or at worst, you're going to be bitter and hating each other. So here's what he starts. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Let's just look at each of these phrases. For this reason, Paul prays because the unity of the church feels impossible. Uh, the verses beforehand, he was talking about what God wants to do in the Jew and the Gentile. Uh, the Jews hated the Gentiles. The Gentiles hated the Jews. And yet God comes in and saves all of them and makes them one family. And now they need to learn to function as a family. And Paul looks at this and he says, for this reason I need to pray. Because this problem is so huge that unless God intervenes, it's not going to be fixed. And, I, and the most immediate application to the Village Church of Bartlett is this. There is something powerful about church conflict that it goes and it goes and it goes and it goes and it goes unless God intervenes. There is so much cold war that happens in every church I've ever been a part of that unless God intervenes, there will not be unity. Cold war is not unity. Do you understand that? Tolerating each other is not unity. You show me a marriage where they tolerate each other, and I will show you not a marriage that is unified. God wants more than toleration. God wants love and affection as family. And this is insurmountable. And so, number one, he says, this is why he prays. And number two, it says he bows his knees. J Jewish men, they prayed standing up. You bowed your knees when it was so big and it was so hard that you had to get on your knees as an act of physical prostration and say, I can't do this. I, I have all these ideas. Everything I've ever tried has not worked. God, I'm getting on my knees. I'm bowing my face to the ground because I am in desperation. I'm working with this couple, and Lord, honestly, they're just getting worse and worse and worse, and Cold War seems to be the best of the two options, Cold War divorce. God, I, I cannot get this couple to love one another with affection and joy as family. So he bows his knees as an act of desperation. But then I love this. He says, before the Father. So American Christians... Okay, especially if you grew up in some kind of, we'll say, traditional background, maybe Roman Catholicism or something where God um, uh, was just a like, stoic father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? I want to just challenge something with you for a moment. Paul is not using the term father stoically or just to teach you when you pray, you pray to the father. He is going to start talking about family, and this is going to get intimate. And when Jesus and Paul pray to the Father, 
They're praying to their dad. They're praying to the source of their spiritual and physical lives. So you got to erase out of your brain all the temptations that you have just to make this a stoic father because that's not what he's talking about. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father. Verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, I want to be very clear that what he is talking about here in terms of every family is every Christian family, whether they are alive or whether they are, they are dead. Okay? And now what he's, gonna, he's trying to communicate is this. God is the dad, and the church is the family. And every family, despite the background, you might be black, white, Asian, doesn't matter. You might be a Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, Greek, Roman. It does not matter who you are. If you've come to Christ, you have been personally named by God. You are in the family and he is your dad, and that is what he wants to make sure everybody understands. So hear me, that person that you are bitter towards is not just some person in your church, they are family. That person that you loathe or that you don't want to talk to or that you don't like, I want you to hear me, they are family, they are named by God, and they are valuable to God. I don't know about you, mama bears, papa bears, I've seen it come out in many of you guys, right? Right? You know where you get that instinct of protection from? Your heavenly father. How much more does God get protective when people start slandering in their head, their heart, or with their words another brother in Christ who is his son or daughter? You want to see God's papa bear, mama bear come out? Keep holding your bitterness and anger and frustration towards the other brother and sister in Christ. Naming means a few things. He who is named is valuable to God. She who is named is personal to God. He who is named is beloved to God. She who is named is protected by God. I think this is one of the hardest things for people to understand because you might be new to church. I want to just take a moment and uh, share with you, we'll just say a philosophy of church that is unusual. You may have come to Village Church for a long time and you hold the church kind of at arm's length because we're I don't know, you might think we want your money or you think we want more of your time or you want to keep God and maybe compartments in your life. There could be a million reasons. Um, God has intended church to be family. That's what he's intended it to be. Uh, these are your brothers and sisters. Uh, this is not just a, an organization. It's not just a place where you go to learn about the Bible. God has created church to be family. And that changes everything. If you come into the church as a consumer, as if we're putting out a product and this is a divine spiritual economy, you will use the church for what you can get out of it. And maybe you'll throw in a 20 or a 100 or whatever or a $1,000 bill or depending on how much money you have as a statement of thank you for the commodity. That is not what this is. When you walk into the church with this understanding, this is my family, that changes how you think about this. When somebody says up front, we have a need, what do you do for your family if they have a need? You jump in. You know what? Sometimes my family asks me to do things that I don't really particularly like doing, but they're family, and that's why I do it. There are three places in my life where I feel at home. Um, I'm from Detroit. Go Lions. Go Tigers. So when I go home, when I'm in Detroit, um, all right, nobody knows the Burbs, so I grew up in the Burbs. I grew up in the Bartlett of Detroit, so just keep that in mind. Okay? So when I say Detroit, I'm not talking eight mile like Eminem. I'm six mile, 45 minutes west. Okay, good. Um, just to be clear. 
When I, go, when I go back to Detroit, I mean, I go through Northville and Livonia and Canton and Plymouth. This is where my parents grew up. Like, it's easy. I know it. I'm comfortable. It's safe. Coney Island on every single corner of every suburb in the entire... You may not know that. Like, you go to Detroit, there is a Coney Island hot dog restaurant everywhere. And they're all owned by different families. Great food, really cheap, awesome eggs. So, uh, number one is Detroit. Number two, when I walk into the village church, my, my whole family feels this way. My kids run around. Like, this, like they own this place. And it's not because they're pastor's kids, because guess what? So do your kids, right? <laughs> right? Right? Yes? Yes? Because they're at home. The village church, the people in the building, it's an extension of our physical home. And the people are an extension of our immediate family. They actually have a hard time figuring out who's blood and who's not. Seriously. Like, we have to tell them, nope, she's not, she's not like blood. She's just spiritual family, you know? But that is, that is a huge, hard distinction that they have to make. And number three, when I um, go into my house, I feel at home. Those are the three places where I'm the most at home. <clears throat> There's a number four, number five, quick on the horizon, but I won't say those. You can ask me privately. But you know who fights like no one else? Family. You know who gets the most vicious? Family. So here's what I've learned. How you fight in public is the tip of the iceberg of how you fight in private. Can I get an amen? <laughs> You're like, that was uncomfortable, but that was true. <laughs> and so you walk in, and if you have enemies in the local church, you might be visiting. This might apply to whatever church you come from. If you have enemies in the local church, you have failed to understand how God sees them and who they actually are to you, because you will be stuck with them forever and ever and ever <laughs> <laughs> and ever. But I love this. When you read the totality of how Paul, Jesus, the New Testament authors feel about unity, uh, this is probably one of the best conclusions I can come to. Your effectiveness out there is contingent on your unity in here. If you want to be meaningful to see people come to Christ and build bridges into the community and be an effective person, your effectiveness out there is directly related to your effectiveness and unity in here. And so I would look at you and I would just say, I just want to stop and say, if there is a single soul that you are not unified with, that you are in conflict with, I don't care what they've done. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with them. Now, there are going to be times when you've done everything you can, right? But if you still have it in you and there is still an open door, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Be at peace. And by the way, women too, right? Right? Okay, good. Everybody says, but my circumstance is different. You don't understand what they did to me. Okay, so the Bible applies to everybody in the whole wide world, in all generations, but you. You're right, I don't know what God did. I don't know what they did to you. I don't know the conflict. I don't know how nasty they were to you. But I do know that if they trusted in Jesus Christ, though they may be quenching the spirit, apparently God agrees, though they may be quenching the spirit, God still asks you, to be at peace with all men and women and children and students as far as it depends on you. Number two, spirit, strengthen me. Father, show me what they mean to you. Spirit, strengthen me. Can I get, I'm going to get Christian cheesy for a moment. Is that cool? All right. Do you ever, okay. <laughs> when I wrote this down, I was like, what are you saying, Michael? When you think of like the earthly Jesus, does tough come to mind? I don't mean like shredded like John Cena. I mean, like, do you think of Jesus as tough? Right? I think most people, they're like, kind of weak sauce. Like, the dude let himself get killed. Like, he's always sitting there with flowy hair and a robe, right? And I was just thinking about Jesus and uh, his inner strength. 
So I don't know, I've never done this, but fasting for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness and not giving up. It gets cold in the wilderness, by the way, at night. It's hot in the day. Finding shade. I mean, it's, it's a tough scenario. Not obliterating Satan in the wilderness when he's trying to tempt him to destroy him. Like, all Jesus has to do is call down angels. And he just sits there and he takes it. He, he even lets Satan take him to the top of the temple and says, throw yourself down and prove yourself. That. It's, it's crazy. You're in the Garden of Gethsemane. You're sweating blood. You're filled with the human anxiety of facing the wrath of God the next day. And he doesn't give up. Like the inner fortitude it takes to do that is profound. Um, the guards um, come up to Jesus. Peter takes a little sword, cuts off one of the guards' ears. I don't know about you, I'd leave the ear off. <laughs> but Jesus goes up and he heals him. Like the inner fortitude and strength that it takes to do that is, is amazing. To not smite the soldiers with boils who spit on him and mocked him. The inner fortitude, knowing that you are God and all you need to do is say one word or think one thought and legions of angels will come down to your defense. And he just sits there and he takes it. He's standing in front of Pontius Pilate. How many of you would want to defend yourself when Pontius says, what is truth? Well, here's truth. I am the truth. Bam, get on your knees, right? Like, that's what I'd want to do. But Jesus just sits there and he takes it. Allowing Judas to stay with him for three years, knowing he was going to betray him, knowing Judas was taking money, knowing Judas was up to no good. He doesn't say a word, doesn't drop any clues until the Passover, before he's going to be executed. Then he finally drops some clues. To watch as his mother weeps at his execution. I mean, he could stop this whole thing. He could tell her to go away. He could do it. Just the inner fortitude of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you... Um, a, a true story, and i got to preface the story with the following. I went to Moody Bible Institute, um, graduated there, and Moody Bible Institute is awesome, and like any school, there's always a handful of losers, okay? Right? Okay, good. We're on the same page. I'd like to tell you the story of the minority, okay? And the story of the minority is the story, when I went there, of a bunch of losers. So um, there was this dude who kept going up to my wife, my girlfriend at the time, and another very good friend of ours, and was constantly pestering them, asked them out on dates, flirting with them, just totally pompous and arrogant, like just thought he was the man. And so the girls came up to me and said, could you just tell this dude to stop? So I go to the dude and I tell the guy, um, hey, you know, it was really nice. I wasn't like, I'm like, oh, I'm like your boyfriend. I'm like, hey, just so you know, I'm dating Bree and this other dude's dating Jessica. Could you just, like, they feel uncomfortable. They wanted to come talk to you, but they didn't totally feel safe. So I'm just, I'm, I'm the guy in between just saying, let's, let's, let's make some unity here. I goes, bro, I'm so sorry. I apologize for that. It's 2.30 in the morning-ish. I'm sound asleep that night. And all of a sudden, I hear trumpets. <laughs> True story. And 10 guys with masks come through my bedroom. Um, and they pull me out of the, my bed. And they're trying to ruffle me up. Well, I freak out. Like, freak out. I mean, I'm like, <laughs> cuss word freak out, OK? So like, I'm ready to go. I'm like grabbing heads. I'm like kicking. I'm like. No way is this going to happen. I'm trying to, I mean, you, if you heard me, I was like, I don't know what's going on here, but I was in an awesome dream, and you have aroused me. So I am done with this. So I got a guy in a headlock. I'm kicking people, and they all run away. They're like, oh, no, this is not going like we expected. So I got this guy. It's a true story. I got this guy in a headlock, and I'm like, are you done? Are you done? Are you done? Are you done? Who are you? The guy finally freaks out. You know, they all run away. And I'm like, what happened, right? Now, the guy had a tattoo right on his forearm, so I knew exactly who he was. 
Well, my friends get out, and they're like, what was that? And I'm like, horns, like, and I realize my like, dirt guys on, on Colby 12. So my friend, bold as a lion, not necessarily, should not have done this. He walks up, and they're all in their common area, and he walks up to them and says, who did this? Now, this guy is like five foot four, okay, by the way, just to be clear. <laughs> he gets up and says, who did this? And all of these guys, there's about, there's like 10 of them, I think. And I, I get up right as he says this, and they start mocking him. I mean, just deriding him, getting down to the very core of this dude's soul. And he just stands there, and he looks at them, says, you done? And he walks away. And we get down, and I say, bro, I am so sorry you had to go through that. He goes, I feel so bad for those guys. Well, my other friend, my roommate, saw the whole thing happen. He went upstairs with me, saw our friend get ridiculed. So he sees these guys the next day sitting in the plaza, which is the open area. And uh, he finds these guys, and they're telling the story to their girls, right? You know, some college girls, they'll just do anything to be cool with the cool guys. So there's about four or five girls, and they're sitting there laughing, ha, ha, ha. And he's telling the story about my buddy who got derided. And so my roommate walks up to them, and he just stares. He looks at the guy talking right in the eyes, and he just stops, and there's total silence. And I'm thinking, oh, no, Brad, what are you going to do? Brad is loyal, Brad is ferocious, and Brad loves me. <laughs> so, enough said. For about a minute and a half, he just goes at them. Stuff like, if I ever hear that you are a pastor in any church that I am ever a part of, hear me. I will call every one of your elders and make sure that you never have a job anywhere where I'm near. If you are the youth pastors to my children, hear me now. And he goes. I mean, it's not like you're ugly. It was more like, like it was a legit confrontation. Like, I, I, I really appreciated what he said. And this is how he ends the, the conflict. And he says this. You and God have nothing in common. And he turns away and he walks away. And I was like... You're standing up in my wedding. Like, you're amazing. Like, yeah, what he said, you know. <laughs> oh. But the fortitude, the fortitude to do that. Let me just tell you what I wanted to do. I wanted to beat someone up. I'm sitting there in the shower just rummaging in my head, like, all the things I want to say to them without mental self-control, without emotional self-control, like just raging, A, that they would do that to my friend, B, that they would do that to me, C, that they would, in justification of what they were doing to my future wife and to one of my good friends who was dating another one of my good, like just the audacity of the whole thing. I'm just like, I'm going to go talk to Joe Stoll, the president of NBI. I'm going to talk to, like, I'm just angry at this point. You know what I mean? Have you guys ever been there where you're just like raging, right? I lost all control and I'm looking at my buddies and I'm like, their control was amazing. Their ability to rightly rebuke, to not get even inappropriate, but just to call sin, sin. The ability to stand up in front of a group of guys, be derided in front of them at 2.30 in the morning and just stand there and conclude with the following, I really feel bad for those guys. Like, that's amazing. That is, that is strength. So we get to verse 16. Here's what he says. According to the riches of his glory meaning this, that God has riches and resources, they're unlimited, they're inexhaustible, and if God doesn't give you what you need to overcome your conflict, his glory is at stake. That's what's being said here. So God's glory is at stake, and he's going to give you everything that you need, everything you need to resolve whatever's in front of you. That he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being 
Spirit, strengthen my heart. Give me inner fortitude. Give me the ability to face my enemy or my brother. And when the two are the same, with strength, through power that is supernatural, then when other people watch it, they say, that is from God. Because any other person would have flipped out. Any other person would have done X. But you, you did something that brought God much glory. Why do I need strength? I'm fine. Well, let me, let me tell you one of the areas where I think you need supernatural strength. Hands down, the most common advice I give ever as the pastor of Village Church is the following. Why don't you go talk to them? If I said raise your hand, if I've said this to you, half of you in this room would raise your hand. Okay, because this is what I say over and over and over again. Why don't you go talk to them? And here are just, here's an accumulation of responses I typically get. What if they get mad at me? What if they get defensive? What if they disagree? What if they throw my junk back in my face? What if I crush their spirit? What if they think I'm insecure? All of those are a sign, I want you to hear me, of weakness where you need the Holy Spirit to give you strength and courage. Now, I appreciate the reservation, right? But it takes strength and fortitude to walk up to a brother and sister who has wounded you and say, could I tell you what happened? Now, there are some skills you need to learn. We don't have time to go through all those now. If you go up to them and say, you're ugly, why did you do this to me? There's probably going to be an issue, okay? I'm not advocating that. But most Conflicts go unresolved because people are afraid and are too spiritually weak to address the person directly and say, here's what happened. I don't want to hold this inside of me. Could we talk about it? And they might get defensive. I've been there. They might get mad. They might be crushed. Maybe it's not even you that crushed them. It's the weight of the reality that they've been avoiding. And then you can be there to pick them up and put your arm around them. Because our goal in talking to people is always reconciliation they're good. The inner strength to fight for peace is rare, which is why Paul says, God, if this is going to be resolved, if these Jews and these Gentiles are going to get along, you're going to have to intervene, and you're going to have to take these weak spirits, these weak inner beings, these weak hearts, and you're going to have to give them a supernatural divine strength. Number two, strengthen spirit my mind. That you may have strength to comprehend, like, okay, why do you need power to comprehend? I'm going to help you understand this in a moment, but um, there are some things that you need divine intervention and power to understand. You may have strength to comprehend with who? With all the saints. By the way, all the saints are every person who's trusted in Jesus, no matter their background, the color of their skin, whether you like them or not. There's something that God needs to help you get with, together, them. It's not just about them, but it's with them. And then here's what it says. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? Somehow, if you comprehend, which is not just intellectual knowledge. It's knowledge that goes into your brain, is understood, leaks into your heart, and affects the way you live. You get that? If you comprehended one thing 
it would objectively and measurably change the way you fight. That somehow, if you understood God's love for you and them, it would change you. And you might say, okay, that's a cute Christian thing to say. Translate that into real life for me. Okay. Look at a child who believes they are loved and a child who is actually unloved, and I will show you two different lives. Because loved people live differently. Look at a wife who believes she is dearly beloved, and look at a wife who believes she's been neglected. I will show you two different women. Show me a husband who believes his wife respects and adores him, and a husband whose wife ridicules him regularly, and I will show you two different men. Because loved people live differently. Now, there's two kinds of love. There is propositional love. I speak it to you. It is spoken love, and it goes into your brain. And then there is experience love, which is an accumulation of experiences over the long haul that validates the proposition or the statement. You are loved, which means nothing if it's not followed up with an accumulation of experiences where that proposition is validated. You show me a loved person, I will show you somebody who lives fundamentally backwards to the rest of the world. And so this is where we get back. And, and, and apparently for Paul, he says, if you even began to comprehend, you know it, you can proposition, propositionally articulate God's love for you. But if you knew it and you comprehended it and it trickled down into your heart, it would change the way you live. It would change the way you live. I have this thing I do with my kids. Uh, I guess you can steal it, but we try not to do this in public. I, I get them one-on-one, -on -one and I'll, I'll, I'll look at them, and, and since they were two years old, uh, as soon as they can speak, I would say, how high does Daddy love you? As high as the moon, <laughs> right? And they always want to say as high as the sky, and I'm like, no, 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 bigger than the sky, as high as the moon. How wide does Daddy love you? As wide as the sky. How deep does Daddy love you? As deep as the ocean, right? And now they're getting a little older, and it's still kind of fun, right? They're like, as deep as the ocean. Nobody's looking at me, right? <laughs> right? It was really cute when they were two or three, and there's, there's this little secret little kid inside of them that still like, wants to do that, um, even though they're only seven and five. And uh, My three-year-old still loves it. But uh, there's something I want to get inside of them from the earliest of ages. I want them to know here. But then I want to just back it up. I want to love my kids as well as I can. Now, I'm not the greatest dad in the world. I'm trying to be honest with you, right? There's what I say. There's how I fail, which has to be followed up with much repentance. And then there are the things, hopefully, the, the measurable experiences that validate for them the accumulation of experiences. And my hope and my deep desire is that my kids grow up and they can say, I believe to the core of my being that my dad loves me. Apparently, whether it is emotional development, gender identity, sexual identity, the, the, the father is the most primary influencer of all of these. Not the sole influencer, but the primary. Isn't that powerful, the role of the dad? And so we come back to this issue that God wants you to understand that in this prayer, he's the dad, we're the family, he's naming us, and you need to stop for a moment, and if you understood not just how dearly and experientially God loves you, but your enemy in the church, is it any different? He loves that person just as much, and if you got that, if you really got it, you would fight less. 
I would even go so far as contending to say this. If you fight bad and often, it is a failure to really comprehend what God has done for you and how much he adores you as a son or daughter. Loved people live differently. There is a, uh, <clears throat> a psychologist in New Zealand, or Australia, New Zealand, one of those places where they talk funny, and um, <laughs> I secretly love their accents. My Siri, by the way, is a New Zealand accent, so it's like, hello, Michael. Uh, um, but uh, a psychologist, genuine psychologist, uh, if you listen to the briefing by Al Molo, you heard this multiple times, and he says uh, uh, that he is proposing that parents be forbidden to read their children books at night. Why? Because the stats are overwhelming that parents who read to their kids, their kids are exponentially more successful in life. Like it's just a flat out equation. You can see it over and over and over again. And so his theory is that um, we should forbid it because it creates an uneven playing field and it gives some kids uh, an unnecessary risk or advantage in life. It's funny is that like he's like, well, because these kids' lives stink, let's make everybody's life stink, right? Like, like, what is that, you know? But it just goes to show, like, the powerful influence. I mean, just a mom and a dad reading a book to their kid at night once or twice a week measurably changes statistically their entire future success of life. How much more a kid who believes at the very core that they're loved? And I'll just say, the older people get, the harder it is for them to get this. Life has a way of jading you. I, I have found that 50-year-olds reconcile much more difficultly than 20-year-olds. Truthfully, I found that 70 and 80-year-olds have the hardest time forgiving and reconciling. Because the more life goes on, the more jaded we often get. Now, it's not a rule. I'm just saying, be aware that the longer you live, the more jaded we can get and the deeper the bitter roots can get. And Jesus wants to come into these and obliterate them all, no matter who you are, where you're at. We'll keep going. Finally, number three, Jesus, fill me. Two, two verses. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts. What's the point of all this? Why? Because Jesus wants to take up residence in your heart. Now, we've got to make a theological distinction right now, okay? Um, there are people who are filled with the Holy Spirit but experientially, Jesus is not living in you, dwelling in you, and is not making a very safe home inside of you. You may die and you may go to heaven, but it's not a safe place. And Jesus, let's just put it this way, he may own the compartment like that is like your kitchen, but he doesn't own your family room or your bedroom or your kids' bedrooms, the living room or the dining room, right? He's got one part, but he wants to live in the whole house. And then in verse 19, here's what it says. Uh, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, why? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Like, there is a large agenda here, and that is this, that Christ wants to take control of your life. He wants to dwell in your life. And that there's something about all of this. There's something about your lack of reconciliation. There's something about your ongoing conflict that when it is resident, his control over you is mitigated. That's scary to me. So let me just put it this way. Okay, stay bitter. Push Jesus out. Try it, because that's the inevitable result. Jesus wants to take up residence in unified Christians. Again, I'm not talking about your salvation. I'm talking about the experience of Jesus having control over you. Or the way Paul would say it in other places is be filled with the Spirit. Of course, all Christians have the Spirit, but all Christians are not filled with the Spirit. That there are things that you can measurably do that make the Holy Spirit not want to take residence in you and that allows him to just say, no, you know, you go do it, you go do it your way. 
I'm going to let you have your way. And so we see, number one here, that this connection um, that God wants to dwell in you and the conflict is what pushes him out. And go to the next slide. I want you to notice this. I want you to notice that Jesus in you always and directly corresponds to love. Go to the next slide. That when he's in you, you will be rooted and you'll be grounded in love. He says, I want you to know the love of Christ. That when Jesus is in you, what others are going to see measurably and tangibly is love. The two cannot be disconnected. Jesus in you does not mean you have more fruitful ministry. Okay? It does not mean you are smarter. It means you love. And you love hard and you love well. And so you may want to define your spiritual maturity as like how smart I am, look how much fruit my ministry bears. And I think just the overwhelming conclusion of Paul and Jesus is this. No, no, no. The evidence of me in your life is love. It's love. And you know where that starts? With your family. That's where it starts. And so if you want to go tell people how mature you are, well, why don't you prove it by your reconciled relationships and unity in the church? I want to close and I want to read to you the, the end of this again. I'm going to give you the so what. God is able. It feels like a BHAG. I'm going to be honest. It feels like this big, hairy, audacious, not girl, but goal. Still like in the back of my brain. I'm just pictures are going through my head. But God is able. He's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or all that we think. The crazy thing is, sometimes we pray this over churches, and we want to ask God to pray for things that we can measure. And I don't really think this is like about numbers, like, God, we want a church of this big, or God, we want to see this much money in our bank accounts, or all these quantifiable things in our life. I don't think that's what this is about, because apparently, this is about immeasurable things. This is about things that are a lot more difficult to quantify, but when you see them, you know them. I really think that what this is about is that God is able to do in the immeasurable parts of our lives, the parts that are hard to quantify, but you know when you see them, he's able to do far more than you would ever possibly think. Because anybody, anybody can do the things that are measurable. But the heart is outside of the jurisdiction of man. It's inside the jurisdiction of God. And these are the impossible things. You show me a hard-hearted, bitter Christian whose heart is softened and he becomes reconciled to his enemies I will show you the power of the Spirit of God. It's not a him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. According to the power at work within us. Is this going to happen because you like say the right words? No. It's going to happen because there is going to be an inner fortitude and strength and power inside of you. And then here's what he says. I love this. To him be the glory and the church. That if Jesus is going to get glory in the church, your reconciled relationships have to happen. He is invested in this. He wants to see this kind of unity develop. If he can reconcile a Jew and a Gentile, if he can reconcile a Palestinian and a Jew who have both come to Jesus Christ, he can reconcile whatever is happening here. 
And I, I want to just tell you straight up, if there are two Christians who cannot reconcile, Jesus is not dwelling in one or both of you. And I've said before, it does not take two to tangle in the church. Sometimes it just takes one. The goal of his prayer is that Jesus gets as much glory as he possibly can in the church. And throughout all generations. I love this, that for Paul, the unity of today affects the legacy of tomorrow. Isn't that crazy? I'll just say this. Some of you have been in churches a long time. Some of you have been here for a long time. What if the village church or your church stayed unified the whole time? How much more different would today look? There's too much at stake. And the big picture at the end of the day is this. Here's what Paul wants to get through to your brain. God can do this. He wants to address this. This is real. This is thick. This is hard. But I want you to hear me. God has the power to do this. And it will require you and the other person or the other parties being filled with the Spirit of God, strengthened with his power, and it will be hard. I'm going to stop at that. I'm going to pray because I want to tell you like 800 stories. But you know what? All the stories I would tell are people who are still alive. So we're not going to tell any of them. So let's close in prayer. Father, I just want to come to you and say, you know, it is crazy how easy it is to me, for me to fight with the people that I love the most. It's amazing that the ones that I know that I'm the most safe with, I can be sometimes the most nasty to. And I know, God, that that is a shared experience by most, most people in this room. And, and so, God, when it comes to our families, when it comes to our church family, um, we deeply desire to be unified. Not just because it feels good and it's happy, but because our effectiveness and your glory and the generations to come are at stake. Lord, may our children and our children's children and our grandchildren grow up in a church where people reconcile by the power of God. May they look at Village Church. May they look at their families and say, God, Jesus Christ is dwelling and abiding here because of the way this family deals with conflict. And so, Father, as we come to this table, I want to say thank you for once and for all dealing with our sins on the cross. Thank you that now, because we are forgiven and made right with you, now we have the Holy Spirit, and we can begin to be the people that you've made us to be. We love you, and we worship you, and we pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.